You have mulliganed for 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 25, Do You Believe in Fairies? This is Remy. The title card for this week's podcast is Fairy, which is a new icebreaker that's arrived in Future Proof. That'll be the subject of a lot of today's episode. We finally reached the final data pack in the Genesis cycle. So for the 2.1 group, the entirety of the core set and the Genesis cycle is now on the table, so to speak. The reboot changes. And discussion about that pack will be coming up in the second half of the episode. Anonymous tip. Cry of frustration, compendium of Netrunner newbie mistakes. This is going to be a little more basic than a typical anonymous tip. And yet the idea here is. I guess partly, if somebody is coming across this episode and this is the first encounter with Netrunner, what are the chances of that? Very low. But for most people who are listening, perhaps you'll be teaching Netrunner at some point. And so this is a collection of mistakes that are made by new players. Just being aware that this might be the way people are thinking. Now, it's kind of long. There are a few dozen different tips here that I'm going to run through. The suggestions, though, are from July of 2017, so actually I believe that is shortly before the second core set was released, or maybe shortly after. But they should apply in general to, uh, to, to anybody who's picking up the core set now, especially if it's the original core set. So these are divided up into several categories. Here's the first category. Well, here's the introduction, first of all. Cry of frustration being the username. We've all done these. No shame in any of them. Android Netrunner is a complex game. Just collecting typical beginner mistakes here is a handy reference for beginners to look through and go, oh, so that's how that works. And for experienced players to chuckle at and think, were we ever so young? Basics. There are seven tips here. Number one. Each player starts with five credits, not zero. Number two, the runner starts with four memory units, not zero. Three, when the runner installs a program, they can trash any number of other installed programs, so you can always install something, even if you have zero memory. Four, when cards go to archives, they go face up, If the runner can see them at the moment they got trashed, for example, the runner accessed them during a run and trashed them by paying the trash cost, and face down if the runner couldn't see them at the moment they got trashed. For example, the corp is discarding from their hand at the end of their turn. Yes, that means you can surreptitiously chuck an agenda in there and pretend it's nothing the runner would be interested in. 5. The runner only accesses one card when they run HQ. The corp gets to shuffle and let the runner pick randomly. 
Don't show them your whole hand and let them choose one. 6. You don't need to discard down to maximum hand size until the end of your turn. 7. The runner does not get a mandatory draw. That one's funny because it seems obvious, but I definitely remember, especially if you've played Corp quite a bit as a new player, and then you switch to runner, it's like a once you've developed that habit of drawing a card, well, that's just click one if you're the runner, right? There are 13 points in the heading under card costs. Number one, events and operations have play costs. Runner cards that aren't events have install costs. Corp cards that aren't operations have res costs. This is confusing because in all cases, this is the number at the top left of the card. Two, runners pay the number on the top left of a card when they install it. This might seem like I'm stating the obvious, but three, corps only pay the number on the top left of a card when they flip it face up, that is, when they res it, not when they install it. All corp cards get installed face down, unresed. Four, no, agendas don't have res costs. Agendas are never resed, you just score them. Five, extra credit. Ice are the only corp cards that have install costs. That cost is not printed on the card, so everyone forgets to pay it in their first game. For every piece of ice that's already in front of a server, you have to pay one credit to install a new one. For example, if I have three ice on HQ, it costs me three credits to install a fourth. If I have zero ice on archives, it costs me zero credits to install one. You also have to pay the res cost when you res the ice. 6. When you're installing ice in front of a server, you can always choose to trash any ice that's already there in order to reduce the install cost. Example, your HQ has three ice in front of it, you install a fourth one, trashing two of the existing ones, and therefore pay an install cost of only one credit rather than three. 7. New ice is always installed outermost, even if you trashed some of your existing ice. In other words, you can't trash the innermost ice in a three-deep server in order to install a new ice in its place. The new ice still has to go outermost. All the rest of the ice is scooted one position inwards, that is, towards the server. 8. Corp Cards Ice can only be resed during a run when the specific piece of ice is being approached. Assets and upgrades can be resed anytime. 9. Resing cards does not cost a click, only installing them does. 10. Come to mention it, no paid abilities cost clicks unless they say so, otherwise icebreakers wouldn't work. 11. Pad campaigns also pay out on the turn you res them on. You have a window to res them before start of turn triggers, and every turn after that, but only on your turn, not the runner's. Similarly, you can res a melange mining corp at the start of your turn and immediately spend three clicks to use it. 12. Operations and events are never installed. You play them, spending a click and the play cost, resolve their effect, then put them in your discard pile. 13. 
assets do not need to be advanced in order to be resed. You just need to pay the res cost. Obviously, neither do operations. Under the agendas heading, we have five tips. Number one, advancing costs a click and a credit. Two, don't flip it face up while you're advancing it. You're meant to let the runner think that it could be an advanceable trap like a June bug. Three, scoring agendas doesn't cost a click. Once you've advanced it enough times, as indicated by the top right number, you can score it at instant speed. Four, you can only score an agenda in your own turn, not the runner's. But there is an ability window in which you can do so right after your last click. You don't have to wait until your next turn. Five, the text on agendas doesn't work unless they are in the corpse score area, unless it says something like when the runner accesses this agenda. On the heading of losing, there are five points. When the runner's deck runs out, they don't lose. Only the corp loses that way. Number two, nor does the runner shuffle your discard pile back into your deck like in some other card games. Three, the runner is not flatlined when they reach zero cards in hand. They're flatlined when they hit minus one cards in hand, as in by receiving more damage than you have cards in hand. Four, similarly, the corp doesn't lose the instant they have an empty R&D. They lose when they are forced to draw from an empty R&D. For example, the compulsory draw at the start of their turn. Five, if the runner would have been flatlined immediately after stealing their seventh point, for example, by Jinteki personal evolutions ability, the runner still wins. Although I would say it's a Pyrrhic victory because the runner is also dead. There are 12 points under the heading of remotes. Number one, only one asset or agenda can be installed in a server. Yes, you have to trust the corp not to cheat on this. No doubling up. Two, you can have any number of upgrades in a server, including the central servers, plus one asset or agenda if it's a remote. Three, no, you can't really tell if a face-down, unadvanced card in a remote is an asset, agenda, or upgrade. That's kind of the point. Four, an asset or agenda in your remote server is not stuck there forever. You can trash any cards you want from a server when you install a new card in it. Five, you are also allowed to trash upgrades in the same way. Six, it doesn't matter if cards are rezzed or not when they're trashed in this way. 7. No, you don't get back the res cost if a rezzed card gets trashed. 8. Yes, the runner always has to pay the trash cost of a card to trash it, not just when it's installed. 9. No, the runner doesn't have to trash every card they access. 10. If it doesn't have a trash cost, for example, operations, agendas, ice, you can't trash it. 11. Ambushes do not need to be rezzed to work. They only need to be accessed. Rezzing them in advance ruins the bluff. 12. The runner must access all 
cards installed on a remote server if they make a successful run. Your last opportunity to jack out was before the run was successful, after passing the innermost ice. If you access, it's either all or none. Similarly, if you're accessing multiple cards from a central server, for example with Maker's Eye, no jacking out mid-access. Uh, the final section is called running. For some reason, I thought the final section was called general, but apparently not. So the final section is running. There are 10 tips here. Number one, if it doesn't say end the run, it doesn't end the run. Subroutines fire if the runner can't break them or doesn't want to, but if none of those subroutines said end the run, the runner passes the ice and the run continues. The runner can still jack out voluntarily after they pass the ice. Conversely, if it ends the run, it ends the run. If there are three subroutines after the end the run that say the runner suffers horrible pain, they will not fire because the run's already over. We don't have any cards like that yet. Two, ice doesn't get trashed when you break its subroutines or pass it. Only specific card text can trash ice. Three, ice doesn't get derezzed when you break or pass it either. Only specific card effects can derez ice. Four, ice doesn't get trashed if the asset or agenda that it was protecting goes away by being scored or stolen or trashed. The server continues to exist if there is ice protecting it, even if it's empty. Five, yes, that means the corp only pays for ice once, and the runner pays for it every time they run through it and want to break it. Six, breakers can only break ice of the specified subtype. The breaker's paid ability text will read break type subroutine. If the ice is neither codegate, barrier, or sentry, there's only one such ice in the core set, you can still break it using AI breakers. 7. Runners can't spend clicks or use click abilities in the middle of a run. No clicking magnum opus mid-run if you realize you're a credit short for breaking all the ice. No playing inside job or installing a breaker when you encounter something you can't break, unless specific card text allows the runner to spend clicks to do something. 8. You can't jack out after encountering a rezzed piece of ice. Your last chance is when you are approaching the ice. You get to decide whether to continue or not before the corp gets to decide whether to res it. 9. If the ice is already rezzed from a previous run, you still have an opportunity to jack out, out on approach, for example, if you realize you don't actually have enough credits to break it. Although I'll insert that's not true for the first ice. And finally, the most common Netrunner newbie mistake of all. Number 10. Icebreakers don't keep their strength for the whole of the run. Only breakers that specifically say so do that. When you pass a piece of ice, the strength of your breakers goes back to normal, and you have to boost it again to meet the strength of the next ice you encounter. So the conclusion from Cry of Frustration says, So that's it. Hope it's been useful and a little entertaining. 
Remember to also check anchor.wikia.com for facts, official and unofficial rulings, and any questions about card interactions. Satellite Uplink Future Proof The Runner Side The sixth and final pack in the Genesis cycle was released on May 31st of 2013, which was just, I don't know, like uh, three weeks after Humanity's Shadow. So Humanity's Shadow has the shortest window of meta, only lasted three weeks. Whereas to this point, the future-proof meta is the longest because it's two months until Creation and Control came out. So the entire Genesis cycle was completed in just under six months. The first pack was released in the first week of December. The last pack released at the end of May. In Future Proof, there are nine runner cards and 11 corp cards, of which of these 20 cards, 13 were rebooted. We're focusing here this week on just the runner side. There are three Anarch cards, three Shaper cards, two Criminals, one Neutral, and of these nine, only five receive an adjustment, though two of them are nerfs. Let's look at those first. The first one is from Anarch, and it is Data Leak Reversal a virtual resource, which costs zero to install, but only if you've made a successful run this turn. The change has gone from one influence to three. The ability, if you are tagged, you can click and make the corp trash the top card of R&D. Shaper's indexing is also nerfed, a run event whose cost has been increased from zero to one. It is also three influence. You make a run on R&D. If it is successful, you rearrange the top five cards. The artist for indexing is Mauricio Herrera. We've previously covered in a Maker's Eye segment. There are three cards that get buffs. For Anarch, Darwin, an AI icebreaker with an install cost of three, three influence, and a strength of X, which is not equal to the number of virus counters and here's the reboot change, plus one. When your turn begins, you may pay one credit to place one virus counter on Darwin. Otherwise, the only ability is for two credits, you can break an ice subroutine. And the artwork here for this whale, this killer whale with legs, is Liga Smirschkane. For criminal, Mr. Lee, a resource, its install cost is used to be three, now one, two influence. For a click, look at the top two cards of your stack, then add one to the bottom of your stack, then draw one card. I'm sure there's a reason why it's phrased that way, but it's very confusing. Basically, you're drawing two cards, and you stick one of those two back on the bottom. Maybe, that, maybe this way is fewer words, but that's all you're doing here. And the third buff comes to Shaper with Deep Thought, a virus program with an install cost of one and two influence. Whenever you make a successful run on R&D, place one virus counter on Deep Thought. The change here is if there are at least two virus counters, previously it was three, the ability is gained when your turn begins, you may look at the top card of R&D. 
The four unchanged cards while we're here are for Anarch Retrieval Run, a run event with that costs three and has two influence. You make a run on archives, and if successful, instead of accessing, you install a program from your heap, ignoring all costs. It's pretty good. The Criminal Killer Fairy, mentioned at the, at the outset with a res of zero, a strength of two, which is three influence. For zero credits, you break a sentry subroutine. Well, that's really good. Uh, one credit to plus one strength. Well, there must be a drawback here somewhere. Oh, here it is. When an encounter with a piece of ice in which you used fairy to break a subroutine ends. Trash, fairy. Shaper gets R&D interface. Hardware with an install cost of four, two influence whenever you access cards from R&D. Access one additional card from R&D. And then the neutral card, New Angeles City Hall, a unique resource with an install cost of one. For two credits, avoid one tag. So that saves you the click. However, you must trash New Angeles City Hall when you steal an agenda. According to the at-a-glance review of data packs from Reddit, in this pack for Anarch, data leak reversal is considered great and retrieval run is good. For criminal, R&D interface is considered great even though it's not a criminal card. And Fairy and Data Leak Reversal are considered good. For Shaper, both indexing and R&D interface are considered great, whereas R&D interface and New Angeles City Hall are considered potentially useful for any runner deck. Matrix Analyzer. Let's take a look at the buffs and nerfs for Future Proof. For the nerfs, I always like to get the input from the big boy. So here's what he said regarding indexing's nerf. Its cost has changed from zero to one. Indexing is a little too good on turn one and a little too good to play into unknown ice. This change makes both of those use cases weaker. By the same logic as the siphon nerf, powerful run events should generally have a cost when they fail, rather than just being able to do it for free, is the point. And as for data link reversals, change of influence from one to three, he says this is a necessary nerf to make Fall Guy, Account Siphon, and data link reversal hard to put in the same deck. Fall Guy is a card that comes in double time, the last pack in the second cycle, a zero-cost resource with the primary ability where you trash it to prevent another installed resource from being trashed. Presumably that other installed resource in this case is data link reversal. As for the buffs, well, no, I don't really have much to say about this, I guess. Um, paying the install cost for Mr. Lee, three is a lot just to be able to, I mean, you're not even drawing one card, right? We are drawing one card. You're not drawing any more cards. There's no net gain. Unlike with Wildside, a resource that lets you continually draw two cards for the cost of a click. And Shaper naturally has Diesel and um, Quality Time, which lets you draw multiple cards. Think about that. Quality Time costs you three to play it. It is an event, not a resource, but then you draw five cards. Whereas Mr. Lee was costing you three to play it although it is a resource, not an event. And you're effectively you're only drawing one card. 
But it's interesting just to look at philosophically how Anarch gets card draw by burning through their deck and spending clicks. Shaper just gets massive card draw. But Criminal, it has this filtering effect, right? So you're not actually drawing more cards, but you're more likely to draw the cards you want. Still, since that's an ability you probably want early, making you pay three for it, it does seem excessive. And as for the viruses, Darwin and Deep Thought, um, both of them have some adjustments. We'll talk about Darwin in a bit. But Deep Thought, yeah, making you have to run R&D three times first or have some support card and then be able just to look at the top card, that, that did seem like a steep, a, steep, uh, a steep thing to do. But having two, I think, is important just because then something like Grimoire which puts one on there automatically, means that you at least have to run it once. Data Sucker. New icebreaker options. We have Fairy and Darwin, both weird. Um, of course, this is pretty common for a killer to be weird. Let's take a look at them in turn. Fairy... It costs, it's a killer that costs zero to install, so that's amazing. Has two strength, which is very good for an icebreaker. Very few icebreakers have that high a base strength. And the key ability, well, the key ability is that it trashes itself, but the really powerful ability is that it's zero credits to break a subroutine. So that's the same thing as true for, oh, well, Mimic is one credit breaks every subroutine. Zero. I mean, it's breaking subroutines for free. So that means low-strength sentries that are only one or two strength, Fairy gets through for no cost. Uh, sentries that cost three, like Neural Katana and Caduceus, it only costs Fairy one. It can get through Data Raven, Uroboros, and Ichi for two, Hunter for three, Sherlock and Archer for four, even Janus for six. And on average, that's about two credits better than Ninja can do. Ninja is, is the king of the high-end uh, breakers, right? It still costs Ninja eight to get through Janus. But it costs even, even, was that right? Yeah, eight. But it also costs Ninja eight to get through Archer. So it's actually half the cost to get through Archer with Fairy. Now, yes, Fem, of course, can get through some of the, could get through Archer for only four credits also, but you've paid nine to install Fem and Fairy. You have paid zero, which is an enormous difference. And again, and even on the low end ones, technically, Fairy is a better option than Mimic because Mimic is always going to cost you one, Fairy is always going to cost you zero. However, are you going to use Fairy on low cost killers? Probably not unless you're desperate because that immense drawback of only being able to use it once and then it goes away is pretty significant. Obviously, there's ways to get back a fairy that you've lost. You've got Anarch tools like Deja Vu or the recently, uh, the recently added in this pack Retrieval Run. Right, Those will get you fairy back. Even Shaper's Test Run can get fairy back for you. But now you're paying a lot more credits for something that costs zero. And you're not able to do it on the fly, of course, with any of those. But still, if you know you have an archer there, and you know it's a scoring remote, having a fairy in hand to drop and scoot through there for cheap 
could be pretty powerful. Let's talk about Darwin. Darwin is, is difficult for me to evaluate because of the unusual boost that it has. Like, it's not something that you can... So there are fixed strength breakers, and there are normal breakers where you can boost the strength mid-run, and Darwin is not quite either of those. It has have a variable strength, but the variable strength is happening outside the run, right? It happens when you put a virus counter on there. So, well, presumably, the buff, now that it is, its strength is equal to one more than the number of virus counters, means that its strength is always one, right? Because the number of virus count, if the number of virus counters is zero, and zero is a number, according to the rules, then its base strength is one. So that means that it's not just pop-up window at its strength zero, but ice wall and roto turret and shadow and chimera are always within range. Now getting virus counters onto it, I would say it's easier than it is with Crypsis. The obvious thing you'd compare it to is the other AI virus breaker. Crypsis gets its counters from clicks, Darwin, you pay credits at the beginning of your turn. And obviously you can consider clicks to credits being a one-to-one ratio. I've often evaluated them that way. But in practice, many times when you're gaining credits, you're getting them at a better rate than one-to-one. So as I've often also said, it's a rough evaluation tool, but here is a place where I think it, it doesn't, it isn't really parallel because you can, it's going to be easier to boost Darwin than it is going to be able to put counters on Crypsis. But the key difference, well, and both cards benefit from things like Grimoire, right? Getting that free virus counter on their surge, being able to put additional counters on. But whereas you can boost Crypsis mid-run, you can't do that with Darwin. And Crypsis can enter a turn with no virus counters. And for just money, you could, as long as you have money, you could click, click, click to put three counters on and then break three pieces of ice without losing Crypsis. Well, you can only sneak counters onto Darwin at the beginning of the turn. You pay for strength, and then you hope you don't encounter anything with higher strength, right? So you could pay... I guess you could, you, know, you could pay a bunch. You could pay uh, eight credits, and then you're strong enough to break anything, and that's great. But then, of course, Darwin's other dar- drawback is that it's two credits per subroutine to break, which is also very expensive. It's just very expensive. I talk about the idea of sneaking counters onto them because once you get it up to three, three is probably, I would think, the break-even point. I think... If you have four, the corpse probably going to be like, okay, I'm taking a turn and wiping counters. So that's tough. So that's why I talk about sneaking someone to make it a little bit strong for now, and then you figure the corp maybe, maybe wipes counters on the next, their next turn. I know Darwin decks, I feel like this is right, existed back in the Fantasy Flight days. I haven't gone to research this, but I feel like there were some kind of interesting Darwin decks. But the fact is, it just takes a different approach than most icebreakers. So my gut tells me that Crypsis is better because it's more flexible and because you can use it early game. Whereas, well, and the fact that Darwin got a buff and Crypsis didn't suggest that that's true. 
I did in my research come across a very long blog post that I opted not to use from July of 2013, so just a month or so after this pack was released, where the author Damon Asha, I'm not sure, uh, the author had an article where he talked about how bad Darwin was, got some pushback, and then had another article where he talked about the pushback and then made a deck with Darwin. It's very long, very comprehensive. I saw the Greek letter sigma in there at some point, so I didn't bring it here. But if that's something you're interested in, I'll link it in the show notes. Mandatory upgrades. R&D interface. Oh yes, this one is mandatory. Every deck for shapers should have R&D interface in it now. Multi-access is important. Um, previously, the only multi-access we have is medium and the maker's eye for R&D. Uh, HQ interface and what? Nerve agent? right, for HQ as the virus version. But multi-access is, is a big deal. And I'm going to explain some of that here in a little bit more detail. One thing I'll mention is that a couple of the games that I played in the league using the full data, data pool, or card pool, um, I, I definitely had some weak decks I was using. And, and a couple different times, someone said, what's your multi-access in this deck? I'm like, uh, I don't have any. And they said, you should. So I'm going to share a couple of articles from Stimhack. The first one is dated May 6th. So it came out before, even before Humanity's Shadow. And the second one is from May 24th, a week before Future Proof, but apparently they already had the cards in hand somehow. And so, but it's all about R&D. So the first one is from author, I don't know, how to pronounce this, S-Z-Y-M-K-O-D-F, looks like Zimkotf, and the name of the article was The Long Game, R&D Control. Controlling R&D means allowing the corporation access to few to no cards before you see them. All things being equal, accessing R&D is preferable to accessing HQ because you can intercept agendas before they enter play, or gain information about upcoming cards, as opposed to cards you may have seen before out of HQ. This will require multiple regular accesses or burst accesses seeing a large number of cards at once. Maintaining this position will result in a win under most circumstances. Easier said than done. Let's go over a few tools of the trade. By far the most important card in this discussion is medium. Again, I'll note this came out before R&D interface. One of the benefits of running medium is that with every counter you gain, it's one less run you will probably have to make the next turn because you've already seen more than one card deep. Medium also pairs well with Grimoire and Surge, the latter allowing you to add two counters to a virus that has gained a virus counter this turn. While losing your medium counters in a virus scan can be frustrating, you're also gaining additional value because the corp foregoes an entire turn. While Anarch decks can make great use of medium, Shaper decks can gain great value because of their solid economy and efficient rigs. 
One way to approximate the value Medium provides is in the number of runs you don't have to make to see another card from R&D. If an access costs five credits, when you see two cards, that's five credits and a run you don't have to make the next turn. See three cards, and it's even more. There aren't many cards that provide this kind of value on top of an eventual virus scan. Somewhat less useful, but worthy of mention, the maker's eye allows the runner to see the next three cards from R&D. While certainly powerful on its own, particularly when R&D is expensive to access, it pairs extremely well with medium. Eventually, the corp will have to wipe counters. So using makers before a virus wipe can let you see several cards deep, allowing you to score agendas and begin shifting to a new strategy or continue building your rig. Most court players will wipe around three or four counters. Any less, and you're winning to the corp wiping too much. Any more, and you're very likely to draw at least one agenda on the next R&D access. Since locking R&D will usually require a run every one to three turns, recurring credits and ice destruction will be of great assistance. Some examples of recurring credits or pseudo-credits are Cyber Feeder in Anarch, Spinal Modem in Anarch, Data Sucker in Anarch, Desperado in Criminal, and the Toolbox in Shaper. Examples of ICE destruction include Parasite in Anarch, Forged Activation Orders in Criminal, and the newly released Kraken Neutral. On a related note, Looking at the list of cards above should begin to illustrate the importance of choosing useful out-of-faction cards when playing Shaper. Simply having a solid rig and economy isn't enough to win a game. Support cards and a solid rig are important, but splashing for game-winning cards like Medium is critical to having a flexible deck. Finally, choosing when to begin digging R&D is critical. Taking several cards from R&D can be a mistake sometimes, particularly against Jinteki, or if you're unprepared for a snare. The ideal scenario is having an easily accessible R&D with a corp low on credits and having icebreakers or cards like Parasite on hand ready to deal with new ice. Cards like Forged Activation Orders played on a non-R&D server, Vamp and Account Siphon, can assist in setting up a more ideal R&D digging situation. Playing medium the turn you plan to begin running R&D will prevent preemptive defenses by the corp. So that's most of that article. The other article about the future-proof set review, which I'm only pulling the review of R&D interface out of, is by Alex Frog, and again from the end of May. He gave this a 5 out of 5 suggesting that that is a great card and a defining card, one of the best cards in the game. He says, like this one, this isn't just the best card in the set, it's the best Shaper card, period. At least for Shapers. Noise loves the workshop more. This card gives Shapers one of the things they desperately need, a strong late-game attack, which also R&D locks the corpse so they can't draw agendas and win. 
Previously, a good Shaper deck probably needed to play at least two medium. I felt this was basically a requirement. Then you had to draw one of them, and it cost MU, and you had to hit R&D multiple times to get it to work, and then they cleared viruses, which was nice, but what you really wanted was to just be able to hit R&D once every couple turns or two, and see a lot of cards, and thus stop them from drawing agendas. This card gives Shaper the R&D attack in the way it wants it, consistent and as a hardware. That means your MU is freed up for Opus and Breakers, and you can fetch copies of it with Replicator. This card makes Replicator strong, in my opinion. In fact, I might play three Replicator, three R&D interface, a couple consoles, and no other hardware, or almost none. The Replicator would still be worth it. Fetch all three R&D interfaces, and then pawn it. Don't dawdle around playing a hundred pieces of hardware while you lose the game. Just get your R&D interface set and attack hard. I feel like three R&D interface justifies Replicator by itself, since drawing them all is so good. I'll just point out, insert here, that this article was written before the cards were actually played with. Right, so this is a little bit of theory crafting. I think it's still good. I don't know if it's that good. I don't know, is my point. Continuing. Also, modded works really well with replicated R&D interfaces. You can just play any number of modded that you draw on them. And if you are Kate, then it's free. This card helps give Shaper a lot more influence to spend, since you don't need to spend 6-plus on mediums. What will you do with it? Probably improve your early game, and or your ability to hit multiple servers. Sneak door, account siphon, shutdown, inside job, more copies of Corroder or Femme, stim hacks, maybe even Darwin, to go with three replicated personal touches, maybe special order to get your breakers fast, maybe a bunch of parasites and data suckers to pressure the corp and keep their R&D defense weak for longer. Whatever you do with it, Shaper just got a lot stronger. This really helped balance them with the other factions. Also, while before, good Shaper players knew they needed medium because they had to have a win condition, bad Shapers would play with no way to ever access more than one card except for Maker's Eye. But now, a lot more Shapers will play with a win condition because this card is in faction and they can easily put it in. So I expect to see improved results from Shaper players. Still, Shaper can be slow and vulnerable to things like fast advance, NBN rushing like crazy, etc., I'd recommend spending that freed-up influence improving your early game. And that's pretty much it. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action. The website, which still redirects to the Reboot Project homepage, is netrunner2.1.com. To play games of the Reboot Netrunner, go to retechie.fun, R-E-T-E-K-I. To find games, go to the Reboot Discord server. All these things are linked in the show notes. The AstroScript pilot program is back in the Worlds of Android book talking about the Kronos protocol. Uh, if you go back to October of 2013, so a little bit further along than we are currently in the card pool, a Fantasy Flight game had something called the Plugged In Tour, where it was through the month of October, they had multiple different locations where people would go and play tournaments, and then they would vote on which of two runner IDs would enter the game, one called the Collective or Laramie Fisk. Well, Laramie Fisk won because people were scared the Collective would be broken. I think the Collective would have been cool. Well, the, the Kronos Protocol is 
Described as an international tour, it was announced in December of 2013 and would determine a corp identity, either an HB or a Gentechi version of Kronos Protocol. And this article that I'm about to read in the Astroskit pilot program, well, it alludes to that. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Top Stories UN Martian Rights Resolution Dead in the Water MCA Responds Remembering the Fallen at Old War Memorial New Evidence Released in New Angeles Tsunami Investigation Battle over new Android tax heats up ahead of federal elections Gentechi Wins Kronos Protocol Bid by Lee Martin, News Direct Chairman Hero shook hands with Miriam Harding and Dr. Evelyn Ibarra this morning, signifying the end of a month of heated negotiations between the morph scientists and the rival megacorps Gentechi and Haas Bioroid. The Kronos Protocol is now officially the property of Gentechi, although it may be several years before the research is ready for integration into clones or other products. Never before, has such an untested technology spawned such fierce competition between megacorps? But the Kronos Protocol has the potential to give Gentechi a distinct edge over its rival. The bioroids manufactured by Haas Bioroid are the only significant competition for Gentechi's clones in the android labor market. This business deal is likely to make a significant difference in the market shares of both companies. Miriam Harding and Dr. Evelyn Ibarra founded MORPH after meeting as undergraduates at the Ecuadorian Institute of Technology. While researching the applications of brain mapping, they developed a way to imprint information within existing organic structures. In an interview conducted during the negotiations, Harding explained, We coded a new RNA structure that allowed the transfer information to use pre-existing neural paths. Once they perfect the process, scientists will no longer be limited to imprinting brains in a tabula rasa state. Given the scope of the product, the scientists are excited about the significant resources that Gentechi can devote to the Kronos Protocol. Harding and Ibarra have agreed to stay on the project as employees of Gentechi, working alongside specialists in brain mapping and neural conditioning. With an unlimited supply of clones at their disposal, this should massively increase the speed of development. Prior to the purchase by Gentechi, Morph had some success with rodent and clone testing and one experiment conducted on a human, Kelvin Harding. Unfortunately, Kelvin Harding, brother of the scientist, has since protested against the technology and urged human volunteers not to come forward to enable further tests. As a result of his case, in which scientists successfully implanted memories from the oldest brain on record into his mind, certain parties have expressed concerns about the application of the Kronos Protocol in human brains. Kelvin Harding has an ever-increasing number of signatures on an online petition demanding Gentechi limit use of this technology and apply it to the brains of clones only. In a press statement earlier today, 
German hero assured the public that while the full implications of the Kronos Protocol would be explored, no further human trials would be run until he was personally confident it was both safe and reversible. The Kronos Protocol, if properly developed and controlled, could mark a new phase in human evolution, he told the press. We would be remiss if we did not take the genius of these scientists and nurture it. You can trust Jinteki to create something special with this technology, to use it to take our products to the next level and find ways to improve the human brain. We will do this safely, carefully, and humanely, as is the Jinteki way. The ability to significantly change the parameters of clones already in operation would greatly improve their efficiency and make them as versatile as the reprogrammable bioroids already in circulation. This alone makes the Kronos Protocol a valuable purchase for Gentechi. But if they do receive approval for human use, then it will open up the personal development market. G-mods are already hugely popular, and if memory or information upgrades using the Kronos Protocol are possible in the near future, Gentechi stands to make a greater profit than ever before, perhaps even eclipsing Haas Bioroid. Kelvin Harding is not the only voice speaking out against this new technology. Conspiracy theorists and extremist groups have already begun their own campaigns. Humanity Labor promptly released a statement calling the Kronos Protocol extremely dangerous and a Pandora's box of trouble in a world where the lines between man and machine are already so blurred. For conspiracy theorists, stories of political leaders becoming victims of involuntary reprogramming already circulate. There are also those who claim it will be another way for the elite to improve themselves at the expense of the masses, and that it will increase the void between the wealthy and the oppressed. Others wait with great anticipation for this new technology to be widely available. For transhumans, the Kronos Protocol offers a new way to improve themselves. And for the Gmod or Chromehead, it will mean upgrades they cannot resist. Humans have come a long way, Miriam Harding told Lily Lockwell in an interview this morning. Through our creativity and our ingenuity, humanity found ways to surpass the animals around us, to improve our minds so rapidly that our bodies quickly fell short of our intellectual abilities. We have made better tools and better bodies and found new ways to evolve. Chairman Hero has demonstrated his commitment to helping us improve ourselves. He will help us take the Kronos Protocol and transform it into a vehicle for the evolution of the human race itself. That is why we have agreed to work with Gentechi. We are not just developing a product anymore. We are developing the human race. I'm very excited, and you all should be too. One thing is for sure. The Kronos Protocol is revolutionary, and the implications are widespread. Selective mind mapping is the future, and though it may be years before Jinteki can make full use of the Kronos Protocol, the debate has already begun as to what that future will be.